I'm Frederick Gerten, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. And we are pushback talks, pushing back almost every week. And every talking a lot. Week, and talking a lot. And we prepare a lot, and we think a lot, and then we send out these thoughts to the world. And, and we found out what we have um, listeners in 151 countries, which I think is a lot, isn't it? It's a lot. Isn't that two more than the last time? 149 was yeah, the last yes, count? Yes, exactly. We are, we're growing audience, or at least countries. And are you going to reveal the additions? Oh, you shit. Can't remember? I should have prepared this one. <laughs> it was like Bermuda. And, you know, it's, it's always not very small countries, but I, I like that. That's cool. Island nations, yeah. they're struggling to survive. It was Reunion. So that's, that's in the Indian Ocean, uh, and it yeah, was yeah. Bermuda. Yeah, so wow. That's super yeah. cool. Yeah. So there is an audience because what we talk about are kind of global issues. And when we made Push, which is now a few years ago, three years ago, I mean, actually, we haven't met in almost three years because of this disease. Um, we always wanted to do a podcast about architecture and about the role of architects, architecture for public good, architects just creating their own big names and don't really caring about the rest. So this is what I'm going to do today. We're going to talk about architects. And we're going to do it with two architects. And they're with me here in Malmo. This is the first time we have like almost like a studio feeling. Only you are alone over there in, in Ottawa, Canada. That Lonely. Lonely. Nowhere place in a nowhere land. <laughs> and um, <laughs> welcome to the podcast, Jenny Getve. Jenny is a Swedish architect, but she's been educated in... Melbourne, Australia. She is now an architect and a strategic and philosophical designer at Dark Matter Labs, which is, I understand, is a firm that is operating all over the, the globe. And I have here in my hand uh, a book uh, which is called Reopening of a City. Jenny is like into the future, which is kind of cool. And then I have here also a, a very practical man who is Finn Williams, who is the city architect of Malmo. But he's also British and worked in, in Croydon for nine years. He started up a, a, a foundation in the UK for public practice. You actually really want architects to work for the, for the greater good. And when we talked, you, you gave me some numbers. Let's shoot off both, to both of you with this, because, and to you, Leilani. In the, you know, in the 50s, 60s and 70s, the, the best architects of the trade were all working for the public sector. Mostly. Mostly. <laughs> and then in 1976, 49% of the architects in the UK were working for the public sector. Uh, so how many do you think work for the public sector today, Leilani? 49% 1976, 50 years later, 50 how many? 50 years later, 15%. Um, Finn. 2016, it was 0.2% in the UK. 0.2%. Oh so let's call that uh, a change. They've mm. been dismissed. So, They've been Jenny, dismissed. how do you see it? Why don't people want to work for the public sector? <laughs> Such a big, like it's a big, in there. Yeah, but um, we, let's, be, let's be big and Yeah, small. yeah, but I'm, I mean, I'm, uh, this is exactly like my core interest. Um, economy, money. There is no profit to be made in that sector. And I think not only architecture, but uh, so many other businesses right now in the world is only about profit. 
I think it's that simple. It's that simple. Oh. But then if you look back to the 50s, 60s, 70s, you could argue that there wasn't a lot of profit to be made from being a public servant back then. Um, but what there was, was the agency to make real change in society, to build new kinds of infrastructure, um, to, to design what a more progressive society could look like, and the tools and the power to make that change, and the money, mm. yes, yeah. the capital budget. The private sector was not as profitable as it is today. Okay, take your point. <laughs> and, uh, and with that shift uh, yeah. and, the, and the withdrawal of the agency mm. from the public sector came the reliance and the shift over towards the private sector mm. to, to build that stuff we all rely on, we all live in, mm. and, uh, and the private sector inevitably took its share mm. of the profits and yeah. as a result became, uh, at least economically in some ways, more yeah. attractive. Um, but there's, I would argue that the, the looking at public-private is just how much money do you end up in your pocket, uh, do you end up with in your pocket at the end of the day, um, uh, perhaps doesn't, uh, doesn't play as as important role nowadays in people's decisions over where they mm. work, at least from my experience mm. in the UK. But is there also something, uh, I mean, <laughs> going wild here, uh, philosophical and psychological that, that we're in an era where, where we're kind of aiming for some recognition or like we want to be seen or, uh, I don't know, heard in this kind of large global scale? Uh, and to work where you're not seen or where you're part of a, of a larger group is not as interesting or cool or like what people strive for. That might be something, but I think overall, Leilani, I mean, push is very much about the financial, the financialization of the housing market. But this, of course, this financialization goes everywhere, probably also into the architectural firms. But I mean, it's, it is obvious that what you describe when you are uh, as an advocate are out, it's very much about how um, cities have lost power to actually do something or they feel that they've lost power. I mean, I, if you, in the film, uh, Saskia Sassen, the professor says, um, even a country like Germany were much, was much richer 40 years ago than today. So it tells you something has happened. Cities and states have lost power and this financialized big world are so much more powerful. Yeah, I mean, I, I think cities have lost power. I think governments have ceded power to the private sector. It's not, they gave it up. They gave it away. That's part of the neoliberal era is for government to step back. And so I was wondering, actually, if it's governments that decided to some degree to have on staff and to hire architects uh, seemed um, redundant when, you know, there's this whole private sector out there with architectural firms and, and they could just leave it to them to do what they will do um, if that's if that isn't part of the move. And then this idea that um, Jenny brought up about privatization, I mean, profits, the, the uber profits available through the private sector that's sort of n somehow new. And I, I think that's driving so much of what's being designed, how cities are being built. And so you don't even need like good architectural design to put up a building. Right. And there's no vision. I actually feel in, like I live in North America. You have to remember <laughs> there's very little vision. It's, it's profit driven vision, I think. Yeah. 
all this is is happening and it's and it's a bit scary and and um, as cities are growing poorer they they are less and less interested in architecture even if they i mean also in the 70s they were building kind of crappy things also when the scale became too big uh, but i mean here in malmo we i mean you're up against this that the big housing company says that you know we don't really need great architecture we don't need what they, they would say we don't need any architectural competitions that's like the the code word for they don't want quality so there is like a copy and paste uh, atmosphere out there amongst the constructors and you 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 showed me an amazing images of 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 uh, six buildings in sweden and they were they and asked me which is from your town which is from malmo and i couldn't point out because they all look the same mm. So this is, and I, you see that. I, you, we, we both of us travel a lot. We see houses in London that looks like Malmo, or in Toronto that looks like, or in, or in Dublin. And it's like it's, it is very much a copy and paste architecture. Maybe it's always been like that. But well, if we go back to that question of why did the shift happen in the first place, mm. um, how far was it, the pull of the private sector appearing to offer a more attractive solution? How far it was an ideological push from uh, conservative or neoliberal governments? I think, interestingly, that was tied up with a reaction against um, uh, quite generic, large-scale, centralised house building. The, at least you saw at the, the later stages of the welfare state programme in the UK, and certainly in Sweden, with the Million programme. So uh, there was an element of it which, is, which was people reacting to uh, the, a, a small number of schemes that were of a scary scale and... Um, uh, felt like they weren't rooted in place that, that led to negative reactions and uh, of scare stories and presented the private sector's individualism um, and supposed innovation uh, being seen as something that was more attractive. Yeah, But uh, at the same time, it was a very uh, conscious political decision to strip the public sector of the funding and the powers, and by that I mean local government, of the funding and the powers to actually build. Uh, and, and that was in the form of, looking from my perspective, in the UK, uh, that was around who builds social housing. So when half of all architects work for the public sector in the UK, roughly half of all homes were built by the public sector, and they were genuinely affordable homes. Uh, but of course, by the early 2000s, the number of new council homes being built had dropped to double figures. Uh, and uh, I think... You can't underestimate how far it was. It was really removing local government's tools and powers to do some to do things. It wasn't just that the private sector seemed to offer a better solution. Having said that, I think we've reached the nadir. We've reached a tipping point, at least in the UK. So this this story about everything seeming to get worse, I don't think that holds true anymore. And that that's not because of any real change at national level in the UK. That's because of local authorities pushing back. Uh, and actually showing that they've got um, that by by being proactive again, by being bold, by taking risks, by building, uh, by by meeting needs in their societies and communities rather than just following demand, um, they can actually uh, create better results for their citizens and better places. Um, so I think there there is a there is there are some causes for optimism. Well, that's cool, uh, and I guess I mean what they normally would say here is that it's too expensive to build to build for poor people. It's too expensive to build. That's the, the, the slogan here. But it, have they found a way to build to a reasonable price in, in, in those places, in, in London, for example? Yeah, I mean, um, 
you can go back to the famous Erno Goldfinger quote, nothing is too good for the ordinary man. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and I think local authorities are kind of taking that to heart now when they see that the private sector isn't able to meet uh, just the most basic standards in terms of affordable housing. Um, they're looking, the most progressive and the most ambitious local authorities in the UK are looking at all the sources of profit, going back to Jenny's points, along the whole chain, from the profit that the landowner takes when they sell the land to the profit the developer makes, to the profit all those sub-consultants and middlemen take. And they're saying, well, well, hang on, If the more we take over this chain, the more we do ourselves, the more we can convert that profit into, on the one hand, more affordable homes, but on the other hand, better quality homes that will last longer. And because we've got a model that can see the benefit of that investment over the longer term, it's actually worthwhile. And I think that, that's the key to it, to me, is the kind of combination with the, the economics and the timescale. Uh, to find a model of development that can genuinely afford to think long term is the only way we can justify investing in quality. But it also in. means kicking out the middlemen. And, and can you do that in Sweden, for example? Or do the legislation permit that? Uh, there, there, there are barriers everywhere. There are invested interests. Um, and one of the things in Sweden that I find baffling, that I'm still trying to understand and get my head around, is a, um, is a ruling which I understand is taken up uh, at the EU level that prevents local authority housing companies doing things that the market, the private market, wouldn't. Hmm. So when we have the conditions in Malmö, the political conditions, the economic conditions, actually the skills in the city on the public sector side to build housing that is better than the market, perversely, EU law, as far as I understand it, says, well, that would be unfair on the private house builders. So, you know, just hold yourself back to what they're doing. And uh, that limits uh, the ability of the, role, uh, of, of the public sector, of local government, to, to point the way, to set the standards, to say this is where we want to be going, which, is, which has been such an important role in the public sector in the past, particularly when we've had um, uh, difficult financial uh, conditions. Yeah. It's obviously, I mean, the, we talked about the lobbyists before, Leilani, uh, how they've been able to take away political tools from the toolbox of, of cities and others. I also just wanted to add, uh, when we talk about these things, it's important to remember that we are in different countries. And there's, I mean, the, the, as you're saying, Finn, the regulations look so completely different. Uh, and, and to be an architect in Sweden is actually enormously complicated. It's almost like you're selling your drawing to a developer who then takes over completely. Whereas in Copenhagen, Denmark, which is like so close, the architect has more control and can actually manage the full project from beginning till the end. So I think that's for like, if we talk about Sweden, that's a big problem. Um, but then being a little bit hopeful again, <laughs> back to you, Finn, we do see now architects who are trying to push this a little bit and be a little bit radical and like, what, what if I'm also the developer? Um, and we have, we have a few of those examples in Malmo where architects also develop, but then also actually own the houses and rent the apartments out, yeah. which, I mean, it's going to be interesting to follow and see what that does to the market and if it, what type of change we could see. I mean, the, the history lesson about Sweden is that, I mean, this city is also the, the birthplace of a big company called Skanska that you could see in London. You can see it probably in the U.S. and everywhere. And they are, they are so huge, so they own also a lot of the other industries that deliver 
goods to them. So basically, they control the whole market together with some other global companies with seat in Sweden. So they, in in one way, they can eat break, uh, you know, architects for breakfast here, <laughs> uh, and uh, it's uh, and and they like it, you know. <laughs> but funny enough, I just came straight here from uh, one of those projects uh, that is designed and built by yeah. architects uh, in Malmo uh, on public land. Uh, so uh, that's where Malmo said, well, instead of marketing this to to someone like Skanska, we're going to make sure the conditions are right for smaller players to come in um, and uh, bring the kind of attention to detail, the, actually the, the appetite for risk mm. um, into this project. And it's one of a number of projects that makes Malmö probably the leading city in Sweden, if not Scandinavia, for architect-led development. And I was there with our new chair of our new planning committee. And the subject for discussion was how can uh, Malmö scale up the work that we've already been doing around uh, new house building by not only architects, but other smaller players, uh, community groups that want to start building. Um, so that we, uh, on the one hand, slightly challenge those established uh, players who are rolling out the, the mainstream stock of housing. Uh, but the other, on the other hand, um, find different kinds of um, niches in in uh, housing production that will make a much more diverse and resilient um, uh, kind of su supply for who builds and who they build for. Mm. When, I, when I meet the, the politicians here, I try to tell them that I don't think good ideas should be more expensive than bad ideas. Um, but then on the other hand, then they find, oh, well, we can actually copy you know, drawings from other projects. And then, of course, it, you copy bad, bad stuff. It might be cheaper, but it's kind of, it's not sustainable. I mean, these houses are normally not really working for, for a very long time. So mm. it's... Yeah, but I mean, I think we could talk about time as well. I mean, the, the time we spend on projects, but also the time frame that we're thinking that these houses are going to be standing. Mm. Because as you're saying, everything is so, it's only about speed and money. Mm. How can we do this even faster? Can we save a few months here? Can we save one day there or a week here? Uh, I think also we're, I mean, it would be interesting to see uh, projects slowing down uh, and being like done more carefully. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, completely. I mean, I, I think that's a uh, completely agree with that. And the, I think the one common factor, if you look at a lot of the best housing that's been built in someone like London over the last 100 or 200 years, whether it's built by the public sector by famous old housing associations like Peabody, or whether it was built by hugely wealthy great estates that come from the landed gentry, was that they were all in it for the long term. And they were, they were building things to look after those things. And so they could afford to invest in things like sustainability and quality, because that, that saved them money over the long term. It's, it's in that sense, uh, in being environmentally responsible was, is also being economically responsible. Mm. Uh, and I think it's that the fact that we, we move at such fast speeds to turn over the capital that's put into housing and flip it onto something else mm. is what creates that short-sightedness that means that somehow a good idea seems more expensive. Mm. Leilani, you're, you're silent over there in Canada. Is that because you look out and you see all these 
investment trust building shooting up horrible buildings all around you and it's yeah it's totally depressing i i live is... i live actually right by this area that's becoming a new corridor and they say it's a corridor because it's right along a new public transit system and what they're building are these cut and paste buildings that frederick and uh, has referenced they're all the same, mostly in quotes luxury, just what our community doesn't need. We have thousands and thousands of homeless people in a very small city where I live. And I'm looking at these buildings and I'm wondering, what was the vision for community, for creating community? They're all these large tower blocks. And in Canada, in order for a developer to build one of these big tower blocks, they need an what they call an anchor, a commercial anchor in the bottom of the building, a retail anchor. And the only commercial anchors they can that that are financially viable in order to get the loans that they need for these buildings are what? Banks, this huge um, multinational pharmacy. It's called Shoppers Drug Mart. It's an, it's awful. It's like a big box store, but for pharmacy. Um, that's what they can attract. So you get no local, um, no sense of local there at all. You don't know who's buying the units. The The buildings are big and tall. It's very difficult to create community. And on the bottom, the retail, it's not your local, you know, coffee shop. It's not a local craftsmaker, nothing like this. It's all multinational. And I keep saying, because we learn from Saskia, uh, in push, that that is money that is going it directly out of the community and into the multinational global capital world. Why would we do that? I think it, there is one more layer to that, and yeah. is, that is all these real real estate investment trusts that are building these complexes. Some of the investors are also these chains, so I think yes, the, the chains I, exactly. they are they are like a part of the financial game which means that there can never be a, a local business coming in. And right. you see the same when we filmed in London at the this Elephant Park, this mm -hmm. like totally new built, totally empty place. And all the the, the shops in the store were like uh, Starbucks and, you know, they're, they're all the, the big and they are also part of the of the financial game. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things that that happens is if I critique these buildings going up along the transit line, I'm a referenced as an anti supply person. I don't believe in supply. How does she think she's going to end the global housing crisis if she's against supply? I'm told that I'm anti densification and intensification. We live in North America. We need to start being more like Europe and create more units in, you know, more density. All of these things. When really all I'm asking for is could we have a little bit of vision? In, I mean, it was when Jenny came to me with uh, requesting that I um, submit something to reopening of a city, her her book, it, it was like such an incredible opportunity to just pause and, and think about the future, think about what I want to create for the next generation and the generation after that, and just... I just don't find that that kind of reflection is going into 
some of this new construction that's going up. But I will problematize this because in North America, for sure, and certainly parts of Europe, there is urgent need to address housing need. I mean, we know this. We've talked about England, London, for example. Um, certainly in North America, I mean, the homelessness situation is out of control. Everything's so expensive, etc. And so the question becomes, like, I like this idea of longer term, people who are in it for the longer term. But at the same time, what do we do about the urgent, immediate need? But architects have such an important role in that, I think, because there is this idea of repurposing, right? Taking what we already have and repurposing it. And I don't know if either of you, Finn or Jenny, can speak to that, but I like how much easier and faster can it be to repurpose? It's better for the environment, this I know. But is that maybe, is there, is there more that could be done in that space? Yeah, um, I'll just take it back a little bit because I'm thinking, um, oh, I'll start being a bit pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> the system is sick. <laughs> yes. Uh, and to, to try to believe that we can change how it's functioning. I mean, we're building for credit, actually, if, if yes. we want to be brutally honest and not for humans. Uh, but I don't see how that is ever going to change. I mean, we can talk about these things, but the, the structures are, are too big and too enormous, and the people who run them are too far away in their mindsets and what they believe in. Um, so and here is where I'm starting to be a little bit pos positive then, maybe, um, because I hope that we will see a growing parallel system uh, that might have to be a little bit radical at first, but that could potentially be more incorporated into municipalities and city work, for example. Uh, so I just wanted to say that first. Mm. But um, I, you're completely right. I mean, when I said like building for a thousand years, like for example, uh, yes, of course, be, there should also be something very fast. And that's again, back to what I said about countries. I think uh, North America, you, you're sitting with a completely different problem uh, system of this. I mean, how it, what it looks like than uh, than what we have here. Um, so yeah, I think uh, mm. it's hard for us to understand what it actually feels like. But the, the, the normal advice would be, it's all about politics and it's about somebody really caring about public good. And that's your job, Finn, to be, uh, you are the city <laughs> architect of Malmo. You have a full department of like 200 people and you're trying to make the city better. But you're also then, you have all these big players here, the multinationals mm -hmm. are here. So how do you, how do you, how do you widen your space? Yeah. Well, I'll give you an example, but f from what uh, I worked on in London and when I was working I worked under two mayors in London. One was Sadiq Khan and the one before that, someone called Boris Johnson. And Boris Johnson's goal as, as mayor was to sell 100% of the GLA's land, the Greater London Authority's land. And they'd got to kind of, they were getting over 90% and incredibly proud of this kind of fire sale that was going on in quite a short-sighted way. Um, and the model that they had was to start with the biggest plots of land selling them to the biggest developers out there who have a kind of oligopoly in terms of house building in the UK. Uh, it's not quite as extreme, but it's still similar to what you see, for example, in Sweden and Scandinavia. And um, whilst these 
house builders had a very a model that was all based on short termism mm. uh, and quickly flipping their their capital investment into profit it was actually taking a very long time because these were such big complex sites in the meantime i was aware that there were lots of small scraps of land that were sitting at the bottom of the drawer um, that the public sector was coming to last because we were bound up into this same kind of economy of scale uh, as the private sector that we just weren't releasing and weren't getting out there on a, on a leasehold basis. So it's not just selling it you know, in perpetuity, it's finding the right person to put this land into use. And these were things like scraps of um, uh, land at the end of tube lines or mm. slivers alongside bits of transport infrastructure um, or kind of forgotten investments for the public sector that, uh, that never proved necessary. Um, uh, and at the same time, there was this field of, yeah, people like architects who wanted to have more uh, agency over what gets built, but also community-led groups and, and small locally-based um, builders who actually have that kind of long-term perspective and whose money comes from and stays in the place where they build and who care about building something good. So we built a platform called, not very imaginatively, Small Sites Times Small Builders, um, where we brought all of those scraps of public land onto a, a common website platform. We used, we inverted the economies of scale. So we worked with a kind of one consultant to do all of the uh, technical studies you needed to do to make it more efficient to put them out so that my colleagues in the land department couldn't say it was more, you know, um, uh, more difficult somehow to put this land forward. And we got an amazing array of organisations then wanting to build that land but, and and not just build housing, but build affordable workspace and community facilities, uh, really invest in quality. And the interesting thing was that all those people had a very long-term perspective, but we actually ended up seeing more housing coming forward quicker on many minor plots of land than we did on kind of the from the equivalent effort and the equivalent spend on one big site with one big actor. So I think this thing of like long term doesn't necessarily need to equal slower. Um, yeah, interesting to compare also to totally different fields like food. You know, we talk a lot about slow food, uh, food resilience, um, uh, local provenance and growing and, and sourcing and and actually those are the things that nowadays you see how sensible that is um, uh, where where there's actually a, an inbuilt um, economy but also it's kind of easier to get that food it's quicker to get that food because it operates on that slower basis rather than relying on stuff that, that is much more short-termist and is shipped in for the rest of the world. And it's that kind of mentality that we need to see much more in, in architecture, urbanism and construction. I love that. I, th I think that's amazing. And, and I'm really thinking, Finn, that you must come to North America and talk about this. <laughs> I have a venue for you. I'm going to invite you. Um, but one thing that I'm noticing in the conversation is this idea of how important it is to create space for an alternative vision to th that can then flourish. And I, I have this general theme in my going on in my head these days about how, it, you know, the time is up for certain ideologies, for certain actors. I really feel that. And I, I often am, people say to me, if you piss off the real estate investment trusts and the big developers, what will we do? Who, who, 
what will happen if they all take their money out of housing and they don't build? And I'm thinking, I think it would create room for some creative different generation, different ways of thinking actors to come in who aren't just solely profit motivated, who might, who might care about the planet. Um, the, only, the only thing that we really have, you know, is the planet, natural resources. I come to think of, um, you know, what we talk a lot about in Push, this enormous flow of money that is like is parking on top of our buildings. And it's like it's basically a land grab, uh, you know. So it's very much like grabbing uh, land in Africa or whatever. It's, it's it's the same kind of investment, which also makes it very. It's for the cities that land grab has an effect because it's harder for you to build cheap because the the, the value of land is so much higher. Uh, so it's it that's like I mean that's the whole conflict in Berlin. I mean this expropriation movement that is very inspirational in Berlin right now. They want the city to take to take all these apartments back for the price that was for 10 years ago. So take all this speculation away, which is kind of an interesting aspect. But it's but whatever we do now is we're up against that all that money. I I, I told Jenny when you know when I was doing research for push, I went to a small little village in in Andalusia, Spain. Um, and a place that was like, it's just out on the olive fields. The city there, Marina Leda, was going to build new houses. And people were helping out building the apartments. And then the, the city took the mortgage. And then in the end, people paid 15 euros per month in rent for a three-bedroom. And then after 20 years, it should be theirs. So, OK, so is that possible? Mm. Can you build that cheap? Yeah, well, if there is no market. Right. So it's kind of the market is making it so difficult. So could we handle the market in a different way? Is I mean, Jenny, how can we? <laughs> yeah, no, but also land. I land. think that's a really interesting uh, dialogue because that's so connected to uh, architecture, but also to the to the market and the prices and the profit. Uh, and I I think it's a, a subject that is becoming more and more like within these rooms and within like when you talk about the future and sustainable cities now we're actually starting to talk about land and it's i mean it's it weighs on a quite dark history and colonialism and who actually grabbed and took that land from the beginning and what are the effects that we still see today um so i know that there's a lot of um proposals about new taxing systems in north america about land for example and how that could possibly change um but I'm also working here in Malmo with a group of people with just like the hypothesis, what if no one owns land? And then we're trying to see what would happen, what would the prices be on housing and what types of regulation would we need to, uh, to see um, for that to, to unravel? I think it's in an interesting topic. Yeah. We, we made some podcasts. You remember, Leilani, the, the, the Puerto Rico one and also about France, the community land trust? Yes. Yeah. It's, like, it's also a global movement where they're, they're trying to address the ownership of the land and in some way locking it away from the speculators. That's right. And, and this idea that Jenny said about, um, you know, people are building for credit, not for humans. Well, the, the name of the game is to 
at least on the housing side, so housing on the land, is to raise the valuation of the property. Always raise the valuation, not the value, the valuation. Mm-hmm. So how a bank is is saying this is worth X amount. Because when you raise the valuation, you can get more money. You can borrow more money, right? Because you're borrowing off of an asset that's worth more. And Mm. so the name of the game to me is to cut that off at the knees, to not allow this constant uh, higher valuation of properties, because that's helping to escalate this so-called, we have to always say so-called land value, so-called valuation, (laughs) because Mm. it's it's all a complete fiction, right? It's, Mm. it's, It's notional, I think. And so the the idea of these community land trusts or or having assets sell sold off or purchased at rates from 15 20 years ago does that, right? It undermines the the so-called value uh of land. But I think that's the era we're in now is to is to be envisioning what if no one owned property? What if there was only community land trust or I think you're back to this kind of the, the the farmers movement, the small farmers movement in Latin America in the 60s and 70s, where they were asking for a land reform. You know, maybe exactly. the, the land was owned by the, the big guy who never really did anything, but he was the owner. I mean, around Europe, it's you can see the, the, the big man owning a lot of land still. I mean, so it's, it's the same... It's very. It's like an inherited system we are in, but, mm. but if it, it's kind of extreme now. But so we should have to formulate some alternatives. And how, or how radical are we? Yeah. Well, here we have. <laughs> like, I mean, I live in a country right where there were people before the white people in this country, the indigenous people, and they there is a land back movement. They call it land back, and it's literally that their land should be given back to them and i mean that's another vision right what would the what would canada look like if the land was given back to indigenous peoples who were here originally right what would that mean for these real estate investment trusts we talk about this a lot with respect to homelessness in canada because uh, you you may or may not know and certainly some listeners will know because we did an episode on this but um, across canada in parks across the country, in every city, big and small, there are homeless people living in the parks in tents because they have nowhere else to go. In the middle of the winter. In the middle of the winter. And many of these people, disproportionate number, are indigenous people. And they're being forced off the land by their city governments and police. And then they're saying, excuse me, this is what they call unceded territory. This is our land. We never gave up this land. We never agreed that you could take our land. And we're going to camp here. It's very interesting uh, in terms of this conversation we're having about Mm. who should own what. But we have a we have a similar dialogue in Sweden. I would say in the in the northern parts of Sweden, um, with our indigenous yeah. cultures uh, and also how how they can use land because they have a completely different way of looking at land and like uh, co co using or whatever you would uh, call it, um, which I think could inspire the the more, like the system we see um, and that we think exactly. is the correct and normal. So Finn. City architect of 
Swedish town. <laughs> what can you do about all these radical ideas? Can you, is there space for that, for that, this debate? Yeah, I mean, the planning system is our way of controlling how we use land. Uh, and you can see how that's become a tool of speculation and played into this model of taking a plot of empty land, drawing a few things on some pieces of paper, getting some stamps and approvals, and suddenly that, that very same piece of land without anything physically happening to it is worth a totally different amount. Mm. And certainly in London, um, and that's going back to London, but that's most of my career has been there, um, you saw that happen on an extraordinary scale with speculation and super-identity development um, targeting or playing into a very small set of private interests over the last 10, 15, 20 years. And, yeah, ultimately uh, what we were doing as a public sector is, is kind of selling these public rights to develop land because uh, that's kind of the, the, the right that we all collectively give to someone to build on it. Um, allowing someone to make huge amounts of profit for it and then desperately trying to claw back bits of that profit even before a scheme's built, but by, by asking for a bit back to pay for a piece of public space or a bit back to pay for a bit of affordable housing in some other site in some other community down the river or a bit back to pay for a school. And I think most people who look at this from a kind of a sensible economic background in the UK context say, well, we just need a land value tax that actually taxes the uplift in, in value and puts that value back in towards public infrastructure and the public interest and to do that as part of the system at the beginning. And um, there have definitely been attempts to do that in the, the design of the planning system in the past, going back you know, like in the UK, 70 years. Uh, but there's a, a growing lobby uh, calling for that in the UK. And I think the, the, other, the other dimension of this comes back to time. As you say, there's so much we can learn from how indigenous cultures take that a far more long-term uh, approach in their relationship with land uh, and nature. Um, and we have a, an economic system, so alongside the planning system, we've also got a taxation system, which again just plays into these very short cycles of kind of demolish and build, demolish and build. In the UK, you've got a crazy situation where um, you're charged 20% roughly tax if you want to refurbish a building, but there are tax incentives and a rebate, so it's free in terms of tax, if you want to build something new. So how can the taxation system be also realigned to this kind of zero-sum game where, where you're actually taxing the true impacts on society, on mm. the planet, mm. rather than um, uh, incentivizing kind mm. of GDP growth, which, which is ultimately bringing so much longer-term damage, so that we align our decisions about investment with those much more longer-term um, kind of attitudes to care and maintenance. Mm. Let's talk about uh, the big super brains of architecture, the mm. heroes of architecture, the architects. As a young architect, Finn, you worked for Rem Kolhas, like very famous. I made a film around Santiago Calatrava. Uh, and, and you see there the, the big names, Norman Foster, you see them almost everywhere. And are they taking any role in this, what we are talking about? Are they doing anything for the public good, these big names? We're just looking at each other, <laughs> <laughs> question mark. <laughs> not that I see, um, but I'm also not following maybe uh, Architect Digest or like the magazines yeah. where you should maybe read about these things. 
Uh, I think I move in a different sphere, maybe. I would like to raise, I can't remember her name, the South African quite young architect, Samaya, Samaya. what's her surname? Valley. Oh, yeah. I, I would name her as a star architect instead and like talk about what we see that is completely different than someone who steps in and who's mm. vulnerable and who will read a poem instead of talk about the amazing buildings she's done and who's actually working a lot with... Um, poor communities or like I mean that's a star architect let's raise those but I mean it's but but I think it's interesting because there is uh, these uh, I mean in the city city like they like city branding and then you invite these big architects but and of course we in Malmo we have the turning tours of of Calatrava and and I think that the content is slightly better than Norman Foster's Gherkin or much better because it's actually people's homes so that makes some kind of it's it's still a little bit more more better story i would say but but still i mean it seems like the cities are not inviting these superstars to to really improve the cities or i think i think it's changing i think Mm. if you look at the machinery that supported the culture of star architects that's already beginning to reorientate itself to look for more meaning and substance uh, in work. So interesting, you mentioned uh, Sumaya. So, you know, w- one of her big breaks, so to speak, was designing the Serpentine Gallery. Now, traditionally, the Serpentine Gallery uh, pavilion, summer pavilion, was a kind of trophy that was awarded to the next hottest um, form-driven star architect. But by awarding it to Sumaya a year ago, two years ago now, um, and even uh, the most recent project last summer, there's a, there's a kind of recognition that there needs to be a different set of, a deeper set of values behind mm. when, when you're giving out awards. And I think the same thing is true of the big prizes. If you look at the Pritzker Prize, the last two winners have been Francis Carré and Lactona Vassal. And Arena uh, from Chile. Yeah, uh, exactly. Well, you, and you've got Aravena from, from Chile doing curating the Venice Biennale. So I think uh, a few years ago now. We actually but... filmed with Aravena for Push. He didn't enter the film. Uh, <laughs> interesting. But, it, but his housing projects are, are quite interesting in the same... Of, yeah, so I think the, yeah. these people are, um, are both being given a platform by the industry because they're challenging the system yeah. in some way or another. Yeah. Um, but also they're getting attention because they're doing something more meaningful than just mm. another spectacular form. Mm. So, I mean, with closing into conclusion, there is hope. Uh, <laughs> and, and there is also hope for the, for the, for the architects. You're not all lost yeah. or <laughs> bought up by the system. I mean, just I, if I could, Frederick, just to add that I have to say... In my work these days, I would say there's huge interest from architects to figure out how they can contribute to the solution to the global housing crisis. Like, literally, I think at least once a month, I get some group of architects coming to me to say, come talk with us. Your work has inspired us. We, you know, push has inspired us. What what can we do? Let's, let's be in conversation. And even on the end of homelessness, which is probably more difficult because architects are very rarely asked to come and build. It doesn't, it's not that it doesn't happen. There's um, Michael, um, 
Maltzen, I think his name is. He's an architect in L.A., and he did a beautiful project for homeless people in uh, for Skid Row. Uh, beautiful. I think he did it through private funds. It wasn't publicly commissioned, definitely not. Um, and, you know, there's a couple of architects from Germany, uh, Daniel Talisnik and Andres, um, Andres uh, Lepic, who also have done a big exhibit on homelessness and architecture. And so I'm seeing this as like definitely positive. And, and it's true. We've, we've, we showed push from a lot of architects. I mean, yes. around the world, the, the film has been asked for by architects. So there is something. At the F Architect Film Festival, yeah. I got a text in my Instagram from a, a Swedish architect who works for a city in northern Sweden, Aure, which is like a ski resort. Uh, and they have problems with cold beds, they call them. And basically, so there's a lot of beds standing empty in the city. Uh, and then the workers at the restaurant, the hotel, the ski systems, they're not, they, uh, they, right. they can't stay anywhere. Yeah. So, so it is, what, what, can I, what can we advise them? Do you have any advice for the people in Ore with a lot of cold beds and, <laughs> and no place for the people to live? What, what can we tell them? I've, I, I mean, as an architect myself, I, I of course... You want to build things. I mean, that's our, I mean, that's what we do. We build spaces for people, for them to feel safe or to feel happy or have a meaningful life. Uh, but I personally uh, think there is a struggle with land. I mean, even if I want to build something and I go together with my friends and so we're like, let's do this together. There is no way that we can do that because land is too expensive or it doesn't exist. Um, so I think it's not necessarily... So easy uh, for architects to actually step in and do things, even though we want to. Yeah, I, I think part of the reason you're seeing this shift towards more systemic, um, structural, strategic forms of, of design and architecture is a reaction to frustration at the limitations of the architect's role today, mm. um, whether that's this kind of subservience to a very centralised construction system in, in Sweden or whether it's... Um, the, the pressure of those piles of money sitting on top of um, possible towers in London. And, you know, if I just compare it, if I just look back uh, and compare what's happening now in the industry compared to when I qualified as an architect back in what, 2007, that was pre-financial crash. And the assumption was if you came out of an architect school in London, you'd go and work for one of those big names, architects. And that's what everyone wanted to do. So when I decided to join the public sector and join Croydon Council, it was kind of unheard of, laughable, like the, un, the least cool and most ridiculous thing you could choose to do um, as the public sector became you know, stripped of all of that kind of specialist expertise. We, we then, post-financial crisis in the UK, went through this period of austerity that that the, the very little that was left then went um, on the back of that because of cuts. And it got to a point where, where architects started to question more deeply, is, is this what I want my career to be doing, purely serving this very narrow set of private interests? Um, what, how could I contribute more to public service? Um, local authorities at the same time needed to build up their skills. That goes back to what we talked about right at the beginning of the programme in terms of the public sector starting to build housing again for the first time, almost in resistance to austerity, to, to actually find their own model um, of meeting uh, local need. And uh, together with a, a colleague, Pujo Agrawal, at the GLA, Greater London Authority, we founded an organisation called Public Practice, which 
basically placed architects but other built environment practitioners within local uh, authorities for a minimum of 12 months. And over 90% of those practitioners came from the private sector. Um, over 90% of them stayed on in the public sector after the end of those 12 months. And they were all going in to, to help the public sector do new things they wouldn't have done otherwise. Um, much of that was building things like affordable housing, but even more than that, it was kind of working in these systems, the structures, uh, looking at questions of policy, of land, almost, of tax, of, of, of development, as design problems, and realising that that can be architecture too. Um, in much the same way that Dark Matter Labs, Jenny's mm -hmm. practice uh, works in this much broadened field of design, where you see that many of those architects can have a far greater impact on society and get far closer to the, the motivations that they had to go into the profession in the first place by working in the public sector. And now when I go back uh, to, to talk to or teach the students in that same school I qualified for only, what is it now, uh, 15 years later, um, when you ask what their ambitions are for their career, a lot of them are saying, well, like, I'm, I'm working part-time for this big-name architecture practice, but what I really want to do with my career is go into the, to the public sector and do something more meaningful. So I think there, there has been a, a real shift in an understanding of what the potential is of the public sector and that we can, uh, we can see that architecture is a broader um, uh, power to change mm. things. There is hope. When I read something you wrote, <laughs> Jenny, you asked, you know, how, how do we dream when things are falling apart? You know, mm. this kind of, uh, yeah. I believe that dreaming is still very, even, even more important than ever. Yeah. Can you close this podcast with some beautiful <laughs> dreamy yeah. words? Yeah, <laughs> no, but I, I am famous for being very dystopian and very pessimistic. <laughs> uh, but, but today... No, 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 it's not today, actually, because I've been thinking about it lately. Oh. I actually think that by being dystopian, naturally, you kind of also become hopeful because if what, everything you see is really dark and like, oh, my God, it's just going in the wrong direction completely, you, you grow hope inside of you somehow because whatever you do with knowing that is hopeful. So, uh, I mean, to, to, the, the only thing would be to not do anything at all, which I'm not doing. I'm very active. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so I do, I do, I, I see a lot of, I see a lot of um, hope within the community. And also, as I said, the parallel systems, they're starting to form and shape. Uh, and I think that's really, really inspiring. Cool. Leilani, we made our um, architect podcast after Finally. all these years. Three years later. Finally, <laughs> three years later. <laughs> we should do them more often. It was fun. It was great. It was great. So now you can go out with your dog and feel that you, you made something today. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. No, but I am going to ask the Twitterverse in Canada how many architects work at city level across the country. Mm. Because I don't think that there's so many, and maybe we need a, some kind of a revolution in that regard. Public go back to public architects. The city of Malmo has 350,000 in inhabitants, and you have how many architects? About 230 in the planning department, and when I compare wow. that to an equivalent size uh, municipality or local authority in the UK, it's it's almost ten times bigger. Yeah, I'm not um, surprised. I'm not surprised. I'll be interested to see the results of my poll. So <laughs> we will too. Yeah.
Please write to us, uh, to me and Leilani, or or to push the film on Twitter, on all the other social media, and tell us what you what you think, and and uh, be positive and be angry, and 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 we should ha we have a shootout for uh, our dear friends helping us with the podcast. A big shout out to all of the people behind the scenes at Pushback Talks. Kirsten in in Toronto. We have uh, Alex here in Malmo. He's going to edit this poor guy. And, and Nini, who helped us with social media, and Valentino. We have a lot of good people helping us. It's a, a small but mighty team, and Frederick and I do the talking, but there's a lot of stuff going on in the background to make this happen, so thanks. Um, they don't get paid that much, and, and we are certainly not getting paid. So how do we fund this podcast, Leilani? Uh, how do we fund this? Well, we don't fund it. We have no funding for the podcast, but... We have a Patreon account, so if you go to patreon.com and look for Pushback Talks, you can give a little bit of love to Frederick and me and Pushback Talks. Mm, that's sweet. And remember, it's Christmas, so it's, it's really time to give. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we missed Giving Tuesday. There's this thing called Giving Tuesday when everyone's okay. supposed to give to their fave. So favorite charity you or can give it any day that's right give, yeah, every yeah. day is giving tuesday for pushback exactly. talks <laughs> thank you leilani see you soon talk soon about more episodes talk soon frederick bye pushback talks is produced by wg film to support the podcast become a patron by going to patreon.com slash pushback talks or follow us on social media at make underscore the shift and push underscore the film.